Good evening, everyone. Nice to see your faces, some familiar, some not. That's wonderful. Um, thanks very much for coming out tonight. I'm going to start with a brief uh, personal introduction, then kind of lay out the format for the evening, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. My apologies to those uh, of you who are a part of uh, this church. Uh, on our website, it said 7 o'clock. So I know some of you, the anticipation's been building for 30 minutes. Thank you for your patience. Everywhere else we said 7, 7.30, in my mind I was prepped for 7.30, so I apologize for that little mix-up. My name is Jeff Strong. I am the senior pastor here at Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church. I am fairly new to Nelson. I've only been in the area for about a year. My family and I moved out uh, west from Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, about a year ago, we'd lived there for, mm, well, that area, the GTA, for... Uh, 38 years of our life. So this has been a huge time of transition for us, but it's also been wonderful to get to know this church, this broader Nelson community, the Kootenays, kind of the distinctive BC vibe that uh, exists here. Um, I want to say right out of the outset, something very important, that uh, I do not have a PhD in either Christianity nor Buddhism. I don't consider myself an expert of, of all things, either Christianity or Buddhist. Uh, I, of course, am a pastor, so I am a Christian, and I've been seeking to follow Jesus and learn uh, scriptures and what it means to follow Jesus for about over 25 years now. But I very much consider myself uh, simply a disciple, which just means a learner, where I'm constantly learning about what it means to follow Jesus. What we're going to be doing tonight is looking at the life and teachings of Jesus and Siddhartha, the Buddha, and exploring areas and talking about areas of convergence. I love big worldview questions that uh, many, if not all, of the great world religions um, kind of confront us with. Why are we here? What's the nature of reality? What does the future hold? And so tonight is, I hope, the first in a series of public talks and, and forums and discussions because I love doing this kind of thing. I like to get people in a room and put big, important questions that sometimes we avoid, sometimes we sideline, sometimes we're too busy to uh, invest the time to research, um, or sometimes when we do invest the time to research, we don't have a forum to kind of work it out and dialogue in a conversation with other people, or to even hear contrary views. So what we're going to do is we're going to do some of that tonight. Format's pretty straightforward. I'm going to present a condensed version of the life and teachings of the Buddha, then I'm going to do the same for Jesus. And then I'm going to open it up for Q&A and discussion for a certain amount of time. And then I'll just close uh, with some final reflections. So very, very simple format. But um, I really hope it's going to be fun and enlightening and stimulating and interesting to everybody here. Okay, let's begin with a basic overview of the life of the Buddha. Both uh, the Buddha and, Christi and Jesus in many ways are kind of pop religious figures, we see images about them, we hear bits and pieces about their story and about their teaching, but for some of us, this might be the first night that we've ever actually had a presentation from start to finish of the Buddhist life and teachings or of Jesus's. So I don't want to take anything for granted, I don't want to presume any prior knowledge. Uh, for some of you, this might be old hat, and for others, it might be just drinking from a fountain, but it's really, really important for the context of our discussion. So... Uh, Siddhartha is born within the context of a royal family, somewhere around, historians date, 5th uh, or 4th century uh, before Jesus. At his birth, an astrologer approaches his father and says, 
I've seen that your son is going to become either one of the great emperors of all time or a holy man. And so what his father does is he sequesters uh, Siddhartha and shields him from all discomfort. He, he tries to maximize his son's exposure to all that is good and um, cut him off and, and remove any um, exposure to suffering, death, sickness, dis-ease of any kind, any kind of anxiety, any kind of a lack of satisfaction. And his hope is that um, his son will grow up to be so enticed and so enamored and so used to this princely uh, royal way of living that he will just fall into that uh, path of becoming the great emperor and fulfill the prophecy in that way. At 29, though, Siddhartha leaves his palace secretly, and he encounters four sites. They're called the four great sites. And these four sites radically affect um, Siddhartha. They profoundly confront his presumed worldview, where, again, for 29 years, all you've known is blessing, prosperity, abundance, uh, pleasure, joy, complete absence of suffering. And he's confronted with four sights. The first is a sick man. Then he's confronted with an aging man. And then he's confronted with a corpse. So he sees the ravages of suffering, of sickness, sickness and death, not only for the first time, but in a really condensed way. And then the fourth sight is he sees a holy man who has dedicated himself to an ascetic lifestyle through which to try and understand the nature of reality, to try and come to the bottom of why is there suffering in this world and what can be done about it. So for the first time in Buddha's life, he's confronted by the depth and pervasiveness of suffering. And he realizes suffering touches every single person and every single creature in this world. And so this experience uh, prompts um, the Buddha to abandon a royal life, and to take up a spiritual quest. So, he begins to study with famous religious teachers of his day who are steeped in the Hindu tradition. He masters the meditative practices there, but he finds them lacking. He says they don't provide a permanent end to suffering. They've enlarged his understanding of the nature of things, but he's now on a mission to figure out what is the cause of suffering and how do we relieve it? How do we help people get out from under this pervasive power of darkness? This leads Siddhartha to adopt a fiercely aesthetic lifestyle. He deprives himself. He goes through a tremendous degree of self-mortification, so much so that he almost kills himself, uh, starving himself. But he finds that that path, the path of self-mortification and complete denial of his sensory and fleshly uh, desires and wants, doesn't lead to an absence of suffering. That that didn't lead to any kind of a breakthrough. Now there's this pivotal moment where in a small village, a young girl offers him a bowl of milk and rice. And Siddhartha thanks her and he takes this in. And this is a profound, pivotal moment in Siddhartha's life. Because what he experiences is the effects of what he will later come to term the middle way. He takes the bowl of milk and rice, not enough to feel gorged, but enough to be satiated. And he begins to 
take that experience and play with it in his mind as maybe this is an operating principle for all of life. Maybe the truth about the nature of things, a deeper understanding of where suffering comes from and how to move out from under it is achieved not by self-indulgent luxury, but nor by the path of self-mortification. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle, a path of what we might say moderation. He called it the middle way. Not too much of this side, not too much of that side. So taking this principle of, of the middle way, Siddhartha is determined to complete his spiritual quest. At the age of 35, he famously sits in meditation under a Bodhi tree, and he vows not to rise from under that tree until he has achieved enlightenment. So, after many days, most scholars agree it's about 49, he finally, so the story goes, destroyed the fetters of his mind. He has his breakthrough that he's been chasing and hungering for his whole life. And he liberates himself from the cycle of suffering and rebirth. And it says that he stands up and he arises as the Buddha. And the Buddha, of course, isn't his name. It's a title. It means awake one or enlightened one. That's uh, one of those two things. The Buddha is the awakened one or the enlightened one. So he, he arises from this um, metaphysical breakthrough as the Buddha. Soon thereafter, he attracts a band of followers. He institutes a monastic order. And now as the Buddha, he spends the rest of his life teaching the path that he took towards his awakening, the path that he's discovered, a path that he's convinced leads to the cessation of suffering. He begins to teach that to anyone who will listen. He travels throughout most of the northeastern part of the Indian subcontinent um, and dies at the age of 80. So he has a number of decades under his belt through which he can um, promote his teachings and disciple those who want to learn his path, the path to what he would call the path to enlightenment. Let's talk about Buddha's worldview. Uh, some people want to jump right into Buddha's teaching, but I think you have to actually start with his worldview before you can kind of fit the pieces together of his teachings in such a way that you're like, oh, that makes sense. A worldview is simply our often presumed, we're often unconscious to it, but it's our presumed picture of the way the world is, the, the nature of things. When I was growing up, I was a big fan of David Suzuki's, you know, The Nature of Things on CBC. I used to watch it all the time. And we all have a worldview. We all have a sense of this is the nature of things. This is the way things are. Many of us don't examine that to see whether it's true, whether it corresponds, corresponds to real, reality, whether it's reasonable or logical or aligns itself to our experience. We often inherit it. Buddha's worldview comes from deep and serious and sustained reflection. So to understand the teachings of the Buddha, it's really important to understand his kind of um, framework for reality. And his framework for reality really revolves around three core ideas, three pillars. The first is samsara. Samsara is from the Sanskrit that kind of means world or wandering. And it's a term that just tries to hold together this idea that life is a continual, repetitive cycle of birth and death with no beginning and no end. So when you think of um, history to a, a modern person, you tend to think of history linearly. That is not the way uh, um, uh, Buddha and his predecessors in, in, in Hinduism would have thought about um, world history. Reality was a circle that kept repeating. It was unceasing, and it was cyclic in nature. 
And what would happen is uh, samsara refers to the process of cycling through one rebirth after another within what Buddha came to understand were seven realms of existence. Each realm can be understood as kind of a physical realm. We might not see it, but it's, it's, it's there. Um, but it was also understood as a psychological state that was characterized by particular forms of suffering. So while suffering touches all reality, there are certain dimensions of reality and realms in which certain types of suffering um, predominate. The second idea is karma. Karma is the fuel that drives samsara. What, what keeps this reality as we know it, moving in this cyclical life and death cycle um, of, of death and, and, and death and rebirth? It's karma. Good, skillful deeds and bad, unskillful actions produce seeds in the mind that come to fruition in this life or in a subsequent rebirth. And so the avoidance of unwholesome action and the cultivation of wholesome actions is incredibly important because in the cultivation of wholesome actions, I can accrue positive karma, I can um, eliminate bad karma, and in the cultivation of negative deeds, even negative intentions, thought patterns, I can accrue negative karma, bad karma. And karma specifically refers to those actions of the body or speech or even mind that spring from even mental intent and bring about a consequence or a result. The last concept, which is really important for Buddha's worldview, is rebirth. Now, Buddha taught something different. A lot of people, and some Buddhist traditions, will talk and use the term uh, reincarnation. Buddha rejected the idea of reincarnation. Reincarnation presumes that there is a steady-state soul which gets reborn in a different form, but the essence and core of personhood, or what we might say is consciousness or the self, some, some part of that remains. Buddha said in the samsara, in the process of death and, and, and rebirth, there's not reincarnation, there's simply rebirth. There is no self. We'll talk about, a little bit about that in a moment. And instead, all that is happening is a cycle of energy and a cycle of karmic debt, one way or the other, good or bad. So this rebirth can, is a process whereby beings go through a succession of lifetimes, sometimes thousands of lifetimes, as many possible different forms of sentient life, each running from conception to death. And again, Buddha rejected the concept of a permanent self or something that was unchanging, something that we might call soul. For Buddha, that didn't exist. According to Buddhism and Buddhist teaching, there's ultimately no such thing as a self independent from the rest of the universe. What's being recycled is an aspect of the samsara. Okay, so with those three pieces in mind, these, the core teachings of Buddha, I think, is going to make a lot more sense. You can't talk about Buddha without talking about his four noble truths. These were the four foundational pieces of understanding that came together to lead to his enlightenment and his awakening. The four noble truths are regarded as the central teachings of Buddhism. They're not doctrine in the same way that maybe other religious might, religions might think about core teaching. They're really uh, a sense of, I have experienced this, and I want to share this with you. So Buddha never presented this in a way that we might see as uh, uh, doctrinally strict. 
He simply says, these are truths that I have not just discovered mentally, I've experienced them, and I pass them on to you. The first is, all of life is marked by suffering, or dukkha. The word dukkha is complex. It means suffering, but it can also mean anxiety. It also refers to a sense of being unsatisfied. That moment when you have a really good meal and you put your your knife and your fork down and you just sink into that moment and there's a really strange microsecond where you're satisfied and also you want more. You wish you could keep going. Buddha says all of life is like that. All of life is suffering because even in the moments where there's, dis, where there's satisfaction, it's, it's immediately countered with a, even a slight dissatisfaction. There's an anxiety. We, aren't, we can't experience whole satisfaction in any arena of life. Life is suffering. And part of the reason why we can't experience satisfaction is because of samsara. Things are impermanent. Things are constantly in flux. Things are constantly in change. And so we can't even grab hold of something long enough to have a sense of continuity of satisfaction. We hold it and then it's gone. It's already on some level changed for us. The second noble truth is that the cause of this suffering, what leads to this sense of anxiety and um, uh, dissatisfaction, is craving, or sometimes the word is translated as thirst, attachment in some circles. This thirst or this attachment grows from ignorance. Buddha says, we assume it seems to us on the surface that there's all kinds of distinctions within reality. I'm here, you're there, there seem to be boundaries set up, we're inside, people are outside. But Buddha says this is an illusion. It's all one, it's all samsara. And, but the illusion that I have a self and that I need certain things and that I crave certain things and I need to um, somehow attain those certain things from a space of an autonomous self, that is the very foundational idea that begins this path towards suffering. So craving or thirst, um, trying to attach to impermanent things is the reason why suffering exists. The third noble truth is he says, the good news is this suffering, this thirsting can be stopped. Suffering can can cease. There is a path and there's a way. See, suffering can cease through the renunciation, through the release, through the relinquishment of that thirst to um, relinquishing of that thirst, of that desire for attachment. If the problem is the desire, the solution is to let it go, is to relinquish it. How do we do that? Buddha says that's the fourth noble truth. By walking the eightfold path, the cessation of suffering can actually be achieved, and we can uh, achieve nirvana, which is escape from samsara, escape from the endless cycle of death and rebirth, and ultimately escape from suffering. Now, I think what's really important to note here, and this is where uh, people far wiser than me will, I think, would want to give us pause to recognize that when we talk about Buddhism, we have to be careful not to lump it into the whole category of, what, of where it usually gets lumped into, which is world religions. Because as you can see, these four noble truths 
the thread that um, holds them all together is to understand the nature of suffering and then to provide a way out of it. Buddha was very practical. He, he wasn't really essentially concerned with what we might consider religious questions. Um, some of his writings, he talks about how the question of God is actually irrelevant to what he's trying to do. He's trying to understand where does suffering come from and then how do we, what is the path that we can take to eliminate suffering? When, when um, Buddha saw the four sights, he was moved with compassion it was in the face of suffering that he vowed and said, I'm, I'm not going to live sequestered in my, my life of, of power and privilege. I want to understand how to help people who are walking um, and who are trapped in these cycles of suffering. I want to help provide a way out. And so this is why many people don't categorize Buddhism as a religion. They talk more about it as a philosophy, as a posture towards reality. Because it's not really concerned with questions like, is there creator God? Um, it's not even really concerned with core doctrinal teachings and right beliefs about things. Buddha seeks to discover a way to help other people find deliverance from this endless cycle of suffering and death. The Noble Eightfold Path is uh, really quite interesting. And it's, um, I won't spend too much time. You can, we can ask uh, questions in the Q&A time. But this consists of eight interconnected factors or conditions that the Buddha says when these things line up and when they come to fullness, one achieves enlightenment. Uh, often the translation um, into English is right view, right intention, right speech. But there's also a potential to, to translate it as complete or full. So the idea is that when there's a fullness of these things, working together in harmony and someone's operating within this posture of, of intention and action and meditation, enlightenment can be achieved. So there's right view, which is right understanding about the nature of things, right worldview, right intention, the desire to act out of a place of compassion and benevolence, right speech, words that lead to life and, and are caring and compassionate, right action, not taking of life, uh, nonviolence, commitment to peaceful processes, uh, right livelihood. Uh, Buddha talked about a several kinds of occupations that he said, uh, these will keep you forever in samsara because they're deriving a, a livelihood from a process which actually uh, encourages death and uh, promotes and prolongs suffering. Uh, right effort in terms of meditation, in terms of focusing our attention on um, the path towards enlightenment, right mindfulness, it's a complicated term, but it, I'm still learning to really find words, and you read a lot of Buddhist scholars, and they're going to come up with different nuances, but it's a sense of being fully present, being mindful of the dynamics that are happening in your mind, being mindful of your thoughts, and being able to kind of step back and uh, rearrange and let go of thoughts which are inhibiting you and cultivate kind of a stillness and a focus of the mind and then right concentration in meditation in a sustained way to um, help facilitate enlightenment. So that is the condensed life and teachings of the Buddha. And if you came here thinking this is going to be PhD level depth, it's not. That is, that's it. That's the condensed version. And we're going to do the same with Jesus now. The life of Jesus. Jesus, uh, unlike Buddha, is born into poverty, although he does have royal lineage uh, through 
a line of one of Israel's really, really famous kings called King David. Uh, Jesus is on the run early in his life. He's a refugee, flees to Egypt. After, in a parallel kind of account, astrologers uh, come and they come to the current king of the Jews and say, oh, we saw the star in the sky. We heard that someone was being born who was the new king of the Jews, which the present king of the Jews, Herod, didn't take too kindly about. And if you know the Christmas story, has everybody around the place where Jesus was born, um, uh, uh, sons uh, age two and under uh, murdered. So uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. He returns to Nazareth after Herod dies, grows up, and Jesus shows an uncommon aptitude by age 12. Um, there's a story in scripture where he's, he's really, he's kind of stumped some of the religious scholars of the day, the, the, the PhDs of uh, Judaism who find his questioning and his reasoning and his interaction with the text and with Jewish history, it's just a, it's a different level of understanding. And, they, and they're just so impressed. And he can kind of uh, intellectually spar with them all day long. At age 30, we don't know too much about his life. Uh, very early and certainly between the ages of 12 and about 30. Very little is known. At the age of 30, he begins a public ministry, and he begins it by proclaiming good news about this concept called the kingdom of God. Uh, one of my favorite stories is in, in Luke 4, he goes to a synagogue, which was his custom, it says. He, he grew up as, a, as a, what we would consider today to be an orthodox, God-fearing Jew, went to the synagogue every Saturday, um, and he stood up to read. And it says that he was given the scroll of Isaiah, who was a prophet who lived about 600 years before him. And he unrolled it, and he found the place where it says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says Jesus rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And it said everybody in the eyes of the synagogue were fastened on him. And when it says he sat down, he didn't sit down in like those seats. He sat down up front because he was going to continue to teach. And he began his teaching by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying that scripture was talking about me. I've come to bring good news, not just to God's people, Israel, but to the world. I love the next line. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then the scripture lets us know that a lot of people asked, isn't this Joseph's son? Right? This Jesus guy is pretty amazing. Isn't this Joseph's kid? Joseph's a nice guy, but, uh, you know, not the sharpest tool in the drawer. This guy is sharp. What is going on here? Jesus, right from the inception of his public ministry, his posture, his demeanor, his way that he talks, his tonality, it, it speaks to a different kind of authority. A lot of what Jesus talks about is God's rule and reign. He travels around showing and telling this kingdom. The Gospels record that he did miracles. He taught, and that was kind of the, the back and forth. He would heal people. He would feed people. He would not just proclaim good news about God's kingdom, which we'll talk about in a second, but he actually showed it. He was showing and telling the kingdom of God. After escalating tensions over three years of ministry with the religious authority and some secular authorities, they seek to kill Jesus. 
partly because he's incredibly popular because of the miracles, in some ways because of his teaching, but they also seek to kill him because he's contravening uh, blasphemy laws. In many ways, in what he does, and sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, through what he says, he's actually claiming to be God, or at least claiming to be divine. And the religious authorities who are Jewish say there's only one God, it's Yahweh, and so anybody who speaks, it's one thing to speak on behalf of God, it's quite another to say I'm speaking as God. And so they are, they've been plotting for uh, uh, quite a time to have him killed. But Jesus makes it known to his followers that this is actually why he came. In Mark 12, he says, the Son of Man didn't actually come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is crucified by the Roman authorities at about the age of 33. He's buried. And then according to the text, three days later, probably most of us know this part of the story, the disciples discover an empty tomb. And then Jesus appears to his disciples, disciples who thought he was dead. They watched him die. They buried him. They paid for the funeral arrangements. Their dreams were over. We find out that they were disbanded and in despair and going back to their former ways of life because Jesus was dead and that's the end of the story. God's kingdom isn't coming. Their hope has been misplaced. And yet Jesus, in a new and mysterious body, not as a spirit, not as an apparition, not as a sense, not speaking a voice in their heart, there's Jesus. They can touch him. They can interact with him. What's going on? Then he spends 40 days with them. He ascends into heaven. And the ascent is an ancient idea in Roman culture where the one who ascends to heaven is the one who is king, is the one who rules over all things. So Jesus, God, um, exalts Jesus and raises him to heaven. And then his first followers, who are Jewish, but not long after that, Gentiles, people who have no Jewish, no history in the Old Testament scriptures, become Christians, become, begin proclaiming that he is Lord, begin living out his teachings, begin sharing his gospel and passing on his gospel of the good news of the kingdom in word and deed, just like he did, and kind of the, the rest is history. So when we talk about Jesus' worldview, in the same way that we talk about uh, Buddha's worldview, it's very different, it's very distinct, but it's very important in understanding um, Jesus' teachings, his core emphases. Now, this is very, very difficult to summarize Jesus' worldview, but I'm going to try and do it in the same way that I did it with Buddha. This is just basic kind of one-on-one stuff. Um, four words that I think are helpful. Sometimes I just break it down to three, but we'll go with four tonight. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is the, that is the meta story in which Jesus lives out of which he understands his self-identity and his mission. And that is this. A creator God, out of love and goodness, created a good world. Mankind rebelled and fell in such a way, committed mutiny against God, rejected God's goodness, said, I don't want you to be God. I'll be God. We'll be God. That, we'll take it from here. Thank you very much. That led to a fall, a catastrophic poisoning, contamination, where now the toxicity of something called sin is replete and cuts through every dimension of life. There's no um, dimension of personhood or creation or interiority or uh, relationality that is untouched by the curse and poison of sin. And yet, redemption 
very early on, almost immediately, when the first federal heads, Adam and Eve, sin before God, God begins a work of redemption. He makes them a promise. He's saying, one day I'm going to undo this curse. This creation is too important to me. You are too important to me as image bearers. I'm going to get this back. I'm going to redeem it. And not only redeem it, not just undo the curse of sin, but one day I'm going to bring renewal in such a way that the most beautiful, powerful, good things that were a part of this initial creation will be enhanced and all forms of suffering, all forms of pain will be, um, will be destroyed and will be dealt with. So that's Jesus' worldview. It operates within a, um, a very different framework than, than Buddha's. Core teachings, I would put this down to two things. Number one, like I talked about, the kingdom of God. A kingdom is wherever a king has rule and authority and reign. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Some gospels talk about the kingdom of heaven, but that was just a way for first century Jewish people to not potentially offend God by, mis- by mislabeling his name or mispronouncing it. So they would say a kingdom of heaven referring to God. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And the kingdom of God is, this, is, is kind of this whole idea of redemption and, and renewal and restoration all tied up in one thing. It, it, it includes repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Repentance is just a word that means turn around. Stop living the, norm, the current life that you have because something new has broken into reality. Turn around and embrace the forgiveness and the salvation and the redemption and the deliverance that I am bringing as part of this kingdom. As Jesus teaches, as he, as he does miracles, as he explains those miracles, as he uh, unfolds his teaching, one of the things that becomes really strange to the disciples, and it's very problematic for the religious leaders, is he says, this kingdom of God thing, this promise to undo the curse of sin, to, to bring creation back to its fullness, to redeem lost and broken image bearers, this kingdom is coming in a unique way in and through me. I am the king of this kingdom. It starts subtly at first, but then as the gospels unfold, that claim gets amped up through Jesus's increasingly direct confrontation with the religious leaders and with those who want to peg him as just a prophet. He's just a new prophet, right? And Jesus said, I am a prophet, but I'm more than a prophet. So through parables and teachings and miracles, he's highlighting that God's kingdom is being established in a special way through him. And so Jesus begins his ministry as kind of this miracle-working, authoritative, prophetic figure But then by the end, you have this whole group of people who believe this is the son of God, which was a title of Davidic kingship. And this this is the one who's going to bring God's kingdom to fullness, which was good news not just for Israel, but it was good news for the whole world because the whole world's been polluted by sin and darkness and suffering and death. And here is a coming one who can deliver us from these things. Other people, of course, thought that was a threat. And it was certainly a threat to uh, the religious institution of his day and what it had become. And so they deal with them in a way that seems final to them, which is crucifixion. Jesus also teaches about the ethics of the kingdom. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, longest extended teaching time that that we have recorded in the Gospels. And in that, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is coming, and for those who want to participate in it, this is what the kingdom is going to look like with skin on. This This is not abstract. 
ideas. Um, like the Buddha, Jesus' ethics of the kingdom are ground-level practical. If someone asks you to do this, I want you to go an extra mile. Um, I want you to pray for people. But don't just pray for people who you like and your friends, your buddies. Anybody can do that. I want you to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who want to do you harm. Um, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, if you, just, if you even cultivate an attitude of aggression and anger towards another person, if, if you even think in your heart, you fool, you, you subhuman idiot scum, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus brings this strong ethic of the kingdom with him. So he's proclaiming the kingdom, then saying this is how to become part of the kingdom, how to be a participant, and what a kingdom-shaped life with him, following him, is going to look like. Okay. So let's pause there, take a little breather. And we've just kind of done a very quick overview of worldview, teachings of the Buddha, worldview, and teachings of Jesus. Let's start with just generic questions about either one of those. Does anyone have any questions that before we kind of move into where do we see convergence, where do we see divergence, where is there overlap, where is there, uh, you know, what, what would, how would Jesus and Buddha interact with each other if you could sit them down at a table together? Are there just questions that you have about anything that I've said or also uh, corrections, if there's things that you've uh, felt that I've misrepresented or not stated clearly enough or would like clarification. As much as we have the MC uh, scrolls talking about all of those events, are there any writings specifically that we discovered or talked about before Ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, do we have any Buddhist historians here? Or people who have steeped in that maybe more than I have? And, if you've, and I mean by steeped in it more than I have. I'd say maybe if you've done more than in that, in that area, maybe a week. And, and <laughs> not in terms of Buddhism, but in terms of historicity. Yeah? And I, and I remember uh, reading when the first writings were written down, but I can't remember when that was. Um, I apologize. Does anyone know? Okay. And, and sorry, what was your name? Jennifer. Jennifer, thanks for that. It's very helpful. Um, I'm going to make a statement, and then you can, Jennifer, say yay or nay, or one out of ten, one to ten. You can, um, again, what's very important for the Buddha and for his early disciples is the uh, taking in and um, 
expansion of the practice rather than ideas and belief. Is that fair to say? So in, in, a, in a way that maybe in uh, a religion like Christianity, which has a strong doctrinal component, and where practice matters, but just as much the um, precision around articulation and formation of ideas and doctrine, that doesn't matter as much within Buddhism because it's not doctrinally founded. It's Buddha's experience out of a practice through which he's trying to extend that practice. And so things do get written down, but there wouldn't be the same uh, desire or even need to uh, reach a tremendous level of historicity and precision along different eras. Is that fair to say? Uh, Any other questions just about... Jesus, Buddha, Christianity, Buddhism. Yeah, Matt. Oh, that's a great question. Do uh, The question was, do a Buddhist worship Buddha? And the answer generally is no. I, th- I believe there are streams that revere him in a way that um, people f- who may not understand certain distinctions, might say, oh, that is worship. But in general, no. The Buddha is not revered as a god. The Buddha is simply a Buddha. He's an enlightened one. He's a man. He makes that very clear. He says, you know, uh, be a light to yourselves. He makes all kinds of statements that to distance his disciples from seeing him as anything more than a man. He says, you know, what I've discovered is a path. I've discovered a way. And so what he wanted, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing one of, one, of, one of his sayings, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, don't look to me, look to my, look to my dharma, which is my, my teaching, my, my path. That's what I want you to take in. That's what I want you to value. The Eightfold Noble Path, that is what, not I want you to worship, as we would think of worship. Um, again, many religions, what worship stems from is a sense that there is some kind of creator or creators to whom we owe allegiance and love and worship as a being higher than ourselves. Buddha essentially rejects the idea of God. He's, well, I shouldn't say that. He's not um, atheistic, really, in his posture. It's just, I think, to use our language today, he'd be more agnostic. He would just say, it's, it's neither here nor there. I'm not actually trying to answer those questions. I'm trying to understand the nature of suffering and provide a way out. And so he's trying to not, um, it might be too casual to say waste time. I don't know if you would have thought about it like that. But it just says, for my ends and for my purposes and for the alleviation of suffering, the question of uh, the nature of um, God's uh, thinking on that level isn't particularly important to, Bu- to Buddha. There are spiritual beings within Buddhism. Part of the samsara, there's different realms, including a god realm. But it's distinct from how maybe a, a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew would think of a god as something outside of reality. Gods within Buddhism are still within samsara. Gods live a long time, but gods still die. Gods still get recycled and rebirthed into uh, samsara. And so um, almost every Buddhist tradition um, does not worship Buddha, they would simply revere him as someone who achieved Buddhahood. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Paul? Yeah, I was just reading to a friend of mine tonight, Ooh. 
couldn't speak to that. No, does anyone have any? Jennifer, do you have any gold for that? No? What's that? Yeah, I, I didn't come across that in any, and haven't over, over the years. Uh, and just to say, uh, I don't know if this gives me less or more credibility, but I've been kind of studying Buddhism in and out for probably my early 20s, almost 20 years. Um, and so, again, I don't see myself as an expert, but I've tried to read widely and read from different Buddhist traditions, and um, especially as I've seen Buddhism as a philosophy and, and the language of Buddhism come into the cultural zeitgeist. I've been really fascinated by why that's happening, and so um, I kind of usually spend a few days a year really diving into stuff and updating my knowledge, and so I, just, I find it very, very fascinating and interesting to see why this is growing um, and, and prominence, even, even just the language and some of the worldview presumptions. Any other questions, Kevin? Okay, so nirvana is probably misconstrued by people who are not Buddhist as referring to Buddhist heaven. Um, that is not what nirvana means in uh, my reading of a number of, of people. Nirvana is the state in which you have been delivered out of samsara, specifically before death. So when the Buddha, under the Bodhi tree, arises as an awakened one, he had achieved nirvana. He had been able to, um, through meditation, step out, not step outside, release himself from the... Uh, cycle of death and rebirth. He was then awaiting perinirvana, which is at death, he would not be reborn into another form. He would not be subsumed back into samsara. He would, um, as much as we could understand it, cease to be. Um, he would be free from suffering. Remember, all of reality is characterized by suffering. To exist is to have some level of participation in suffering. And so nirvana is a state, what we would consider here and now, through which I can get out of that, and then I await perinirvana, where I am delivered, and I do not need to go back into the wheel of time and the cycle of death and rebirth. That's correct. Yep. So, in his time, while he lived, worked, and surrounded, the general population around him, what God It'd be Hinduism. So, some of the same ideas of the cycle of, of karma, cycle of birth and death. Um, Buddha eschews some of the Hindu gods. He uh, alters some... Hindu theology in the sense that some Hindu traditions believe that the gods could forgive karmic debt, that they could somehow provide a different way. And he says, no, that is solely on the individual. Um, we have to expunge bad karma. We have to accrue good karma. No one else, there's no outside force um, that will, in a sense, 
unshackless. That is something that we have to do. But Hinduism would have been the kind of the baseline uh, religion and worldview that he would have grown up. So when he when he goes on a spiritual quest and he learns to meditate, he, he gains those meditative practices from uh, Hindu uh, holy men and teachers. So there's a, a, a large degree of overlap between Hinduism and Buddhism, but uh, Buddha uh, creates some distinctions out of his own enlightenment. He kind of sees Hinduism as a um, not right view in terms of the uh, Eightfold Noble Path. It, it's not starting on a right view. It needs to be tweaked a little bit in terms of the nature of reality. That is an incredibly complex and great question. What did Buddha mean by meditation? Jen, what do you think? <laughs> um, okay, yep. Yeah, I, I think, sorry, what was your name? Brian. Brian. Thanks, Brian. That's very, very helpful. I think I want to latch on to your idea of, of, of clarity and purification of, of the mind. Um, this, these last three uh, elements of the Eightfold Path, effort, mindfulness, and meditation, as it relates to concentration and what we would think holistically, we might all lap, um, might not be the most helpful thing to do, but we might all kind of pull together in terms of what does Buddha mean when he means meditation. Um, meditation is the process of uh, coming into clarity, pushing past the illusions, what appears to be true, into what is actually true, and then maybe we might say surrendering to that. Not fighting it, not trying to change it, not resisting it, but accepting it as a posture of recognition that actually, um, and I know this gets used in really trite ways, but you know, I and the universe are one. These distinctions that I see, um, um, the way that I tend to even understand myself, to use that language, that is an illusion and meditation is the process through which I cleanse my mind of negative karmic seeds and cultivate stillness to a degree that I can accrue positive karmic seeds, right view, so that over time I can bring it all the way back to David Suzuki. I can understand the nature of things. And I now know how to move forward in my life out of not just a right understanding, but a right mental posture in terms of how to, um, how to act and live. So it's a very complicated concept on one level. We might think of the stereotype of someone just 
sitting cross-legged in transcendental meditation, saying, um, and just kind of a emptying of the mind. Um, but that's, that would be a pretty base caricature of uh, what Buddha was trying to achieve. Buddha was trying to just become aware of the internal dynamics and um, we might say purge his mind of all that is false from impressions to intentions to perceptions and embrace and surrender to that which is real regardless of how challenging or difficult that um, presents itself to be in terms of um, pushing back on the on kind of the idols and illusions of the self that the Buddha says we all live with. That's probably not the clearest answer in the world, Grace, but is that a ballpark? Okay. Okay. So here's what I want you to think about. Oh, well, yeah, one more question. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one quick thing, I would say Jesus' teachings are controversial, but not essentially because they're counter the Hebrew scriptures or counter the established, what we would think of as orthodox Judaism. Why Jesus is controversial is that he's saying, everything that has come before me, all the major symbols of Judaism, from the Ten Commandments to the Temple to the deliverance of the Jewish people through the Red Sea, through the Passover, through the teachings, through the giving of the law, all of those things in history were leading somewhere, and where they were leading was me. He positions himself as the center of the entire Jewish story to that point, and that's what makes him controversial. He begins talking about himself as if he's a new temple. He begins doing things like forgiving people their sins, which we read and we're like, oh, that's really sweet. That's really nice of you, Jesus. But to a religious person who's Jewish, there's one place that you can get forgiveness, and that is the temple in Jerusalem. Who does Jesus think he is that he can just walk around and touch people or even just say your sins are forgiven? That's why people say, by what authority does he do these things? Who does he think he is? And the implication pretty clearly is he's either mad. That comes up in Luke's gospel. Even some of his family are like, yeah, this guy's whack. We don't know where he came from. Brutal family. Uh, anyways, they're, they kind of try and disown him to a certain extent. They, they keep him at arm's length. And some religious teachers say he's got the spirit of the devil in him. He's, this is clearly the work of, of anti-God forces. And other people are like, what if he is... God with us? What if it's true? So that's why what makes Jesus controversial. It's not so much that he's teaching against tradition. He's intensifying the teaching, but he's localizing everything in himself. The great hope of Israel, the great hope for the world, doesn't just lie with the Jewish people or with the law or with the Torah. It, it lies with me. All of that was pointing to me. That is the controversy. That's the, that's the big piece. Your second question, which is excellent, I do not know what the reaction. I, that is actually something I have never even thought to look into. Very fascinating question, but I don't know. Does anyone know offhand? We can all go home and Google some good searches, sources. It was so 
Oh, right. That would, yes. Right. Right. The middle way is seen as the easy way <laughs> a little bit. I was going to say, yeah, I don't, I don't remember reading any persecution as such. Right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, and there are incredibly strong uh, nonviolent threads in Hinduism and Buddhism that would ever prevent a real escalation of any kind of persecution that we would see. Uh, let's say Rome or some of the Jewish authorities taking uh, against against Jesus. So, yeah. Okay, so really quickly, let's explore mentally. Oh, yeah. Oh, great questions. The question is, is there actually anywhere in Scripture where uh, people refer to Jesus or call him the Son of God, or is that a later attribution? Um, yes, there's a few times. One is his engagement with Peter where uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you're some kind of prophetic figure. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that. Another one is before Pilate um, and the Jewish authorities before his crucifixion when they accuse him of being the son of God. Um, they, and they kind of say, in a sense, this is your chance to get out of it. Like, the accusation is you're the son of God, so are you? Because now is your chance to say, no, this whole thing can, we, this can go in a different direction. And he says, you know, kind of a play with, with Jewish language as I understand it or, or the Greek, but the, the idea is he kind of says, you know, you say so. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of, um, I would say, you know, to answer that in another way, I would say what makes it very, what makes it very clear is in both word and deed and almost everything that Jesus does, he is both revealing and claiming divine status. So there's really only certain things that God can do, forgive sins, um, contravene his law by doing things like touching a leper. You're not supposed to touch people or things that are unclean or in the process of death or dying. Jesus does that with impunity. Jesus does it, and he doesn't actually get leprosy. He just extends health into people who are sick and dying. Um, yeah, big question, but a good question. But I, I would make the argument, yes, Jesus does affirm his divinity in multiple instances, and his followers later affirm it. And the resurrection, I would argue, is a confirmation on divine authority that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay, so Jesus and Buddha. Yep. Does Jesus ever say that we are all children of God or just all part of God? That we're all children of God or all part of God? Uh, no, he refers to Israel as God's people as the chosen people. Jesus' worldview, however, 
um, would have presumed and assumed that every human being is made in the image of God. In the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth, and he put human beings in a garden, male and female. And the theological significance of that story is that all human beings are image bearers of God, meaning um, every single human being uh, is a... Um, there is no second-class citizens of humanity. We are all um, image bearers of God. The language of children of God becomes more complex because in the Bible, the children of God are only that which are adopted. And so in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his son because he rescued them out from a, a place of broken image-bearingness. Um, but Jesus is presuming that every person, and we see this in the New Testament writings when the early disciples are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, is that they'll use language like, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or f- free, uh, or, sorry, male or female, slave or free, in Christ, these are all one. This is... Uh, Jesus saw his mission as to Israel primarily. He doesn't see himself as going to the Gentiles. But that, that is different than saying Jesus didn't see Gentiles as um, image bearers of God. I would, I would simply just say Jesus says my mission, the reason why I've come, is primarily to call Israel back to God, to be the light that it was meant to be in and through me to the nations. Because that goes back to the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, where through God's people, through Israel, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Why? Because everybody is an image bearer. Everybody's contaminated by sin, but God doesn't say, well, I actually only care about these people, everyone else, whatever. God's saying, I'm going to take these people, form them into a people through whom everybody is going to discover this rescue. So Jesus and Buddha, let's play with it in our heads, sit down for a conversation over dinner. Where are the areas of convergence? Where do you think these two are going to listen carefully and openly with each other and say, hey, I kind of, what are they going to say? I see where you're going. I appreciate this. I value this about either your worldview or your, um, or your teaching. Let's talk about areas of convergence just quickly. Suffering, for sure. Both enormously concerned with suffering. The Gospels again and again use the language, Jesus seeing the sick or seeing the crowds or seeing the people who are lost. Is, are, he was filled with compassion. And, and the words there, I mean, kind of like heart-wrenching, sick to his stomach. In the same way that Buddha seeing the four sights and seeing suffering and letting the full weight of suffering affect him and saying, this is not okay. I'm not just going to retreat back to my place of royalty and comfort. I want to move into the suffering and try. And so, yeah, suffering is definitely going to be a place that both of them say we're on the same page in terms of um, that suffering is not a good thing and needs to be dealt with. Any other place of convergence? Miriam? Right. So the general idea of living in a selfless way um, that comes out of a slightly different place. Jesus is going to, in one sense, affirm the idea of a, a continuous self. Buddha's not. But practically, there's going to be a high degree of overlap in terms of the expressions of selflessness, compassion, mercy, care, what we might think of today as justice. Any other areas that strike you as areas of convergence? 
Right, right, absolutely. One of the things that Buddha uh, teaches strongly against in terms of Hinduism is the caste system. Buddha says he has no place for it in his philosophy. He doesn't believe that there are, are certain people who, in a sense, are a different grade or degree of humanity out of which then other higher grades can determine how they live. So Buddha has, um, much more than in Hindu philosophy, a, a more developed sense of equality of human beings. Now, again, we have to be careful how we think about that because he's not going to think about human beings as autonomous individual selves, but he's still going to say our treatment, our, you know, our compassion, our love, our patience, that should, you know, we should be no respecter of persons in the sense of, oh, this person deserves it, this person doesn't. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's tremendous continuity. Say what you want about Jesus, whether or not you believe he was the son of God or he was divine, or maybe you just want to uh, say he's just maybe just a prophet or a great teacher, whatever you believe about Buddhism uh, and Buddha and his claims and his worldview. Um, both of these people, uh, just from a human perspective and a history of world civilization, have had a massive shaping effect on cultures. And part of that is because there was a tremendous level of integrity between their ideas and their practice and living out of those ideas and those ideals. It's very easy to come up with ideals. It's very easy to express and celebrate, celebrate values. It's quite another thing to live that out. Uh, and in certain cases with both men, to live it out at great cost to yourself. Yeah, both claim to be speaking from a place um, where they could say, I have the right view out of which to understand the nature of things. So both are claiming to have um, an enlightened, Jesus doesn't use the word enlightened, um, but both are claiming a position of kind of wordy, like metaphysical superiority in terms of perspective. Jesus comes and says things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The, the, the truth, the totality of all things is best understood in and through me and my teachings. Buddha says, I have broken, I've, been liber I've liberated myself out of the chains and the fetters of illusion. And I can now teach other people the core truths of the nature of things and how to move out from under suffering. Yeah. Yeah, let's go to uh, places of convergence. So that's one. Jesus is under, uh, there's going to be divergence. They're going to disagree pretty strongly as it relates to what the telos, what the purpose, what the end goal of all things is. Jesus is going to use words like salvation, deliverance, restoration, rescue to infer this idea that. Um, a good creation has been contaminated, is being restored, and is being renewed here and now. Ultimately, the entire biblical story, some people think the biblical story ends with good people up in heaven, bad people down in hell. Uh, again, that's a really uh, terrible 
uh, caricature that uh, tends to run wild in all kinds of places. The biblical story actually ends uh, with a new heavens and a new earth. Those who have rejected God, yes, do face separation. But a new heavens and a new earth where heaven comes down and is married and unified with earth. And those who have yielded and participated and surrendered to this king and to the kingdom of God live forever, not in heaven or what we might think of as a disembodied state, but like Jesus post-resurrection in a real world, but just everything that's good about the world better, everything that's terrible about the world eliminated. Buddhism isn't interested, the concept of redemption or restoration, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you, you, there's no correlate in terms of the, the world, it doesn't, make, it doesn't make any sense. You're not trying to, you're trying to escape suffering, yes, in, in small ways here and now in terms of the suffering that we experience every day, but you want to actually get out of the end game of suffering, which is out of samsara, which is ultimately going to be to a kind of non-existence. Buddha does call it bliss, but it's wrong to think of it as, well, as a self, I would find myself in a different dimension just feeling happy because I'm not a unified self within Buddhism. So it, it really comes closer to what we would think of as just complete non-existence. The absence of suffering is bliss. Other areas of divergence. Yeah, this is where almost every uh, highly uh, intelligent Buddhist, as far as I can <laughs> decipher in terms of understanding, will say that is something that Buddhism has a hard time answering. What Buddhism will not, what I can affirm, it, samsara is, has no beginning and it has no end. It will never end. There will never be a time where all the karmic debt somehow gets rebirthed in such a way that it all ends up positive and then realities we know it is done and then it's not it's there is no beginning there is no end but in a way that the buddha never really tries to understand in terms of the mechanisms of how it all works there can be deliverance from samsara but he really doesn't get into the x's and o's of not only what that means personally, that's going to be strange language for him, but also he's not going to get into what are the ramifications for the system. If my energy, if my consciousness, as much as I thought, think I have consciousness, if that leaves samsara, does that create a gap in samsara? Does that get filled by something else? Is samsara lessened? How can it be if it's recycled energy? Um, so that's a very complicated question that as far as I've read and been exposed to in Buddhist philosophy, I, I think just in an honest way, um, Buddhist philosophers and thinkers uh, and teachers would just say that that is just a, a mystery that is, is and again that's probably a mystery that is not really fruitful to even go down that path again it, it, those are kind of metaphysical questions that are actually going to trip us up from focusing on what we should focus on which is the practice and movement into freedom other areas of divergence Mike Yeah, uh, a few things there. I think, um, so the comment was, 
Buddha finds enlightenment by walking the path. Christ uh, offers freedom, salvation from suffering and into bliss, uh, abundant life, eternal life by trusting in him. Um, I'd want to nuance that a little bit because one of the areas of convergence that I would say that I think Jesus would really appreciate about the Buddha um, is that I think Jesus would say, I really like your emphasis on practicing this stuff, not getting bogged down in just ideas and locking it up here, but to actually practice this. At the end of of his extended teaching, Matthew 7, he says, so whoever hears these words of mine, referring to everything that he's just said over three chapters, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house on a foundation. Storms come, it doesn't matter, it's going to stand. If you hear these words of mine and don't put them into practice, you're like someone who builds their house on sand, storm comes, there's no foundation. Believing stuff is the way we think about it. Having right thoughts just in your head for Jesus is enough. For Jesus, um, the path to salvation is, yes, trusting in him, but that is followed by a trust means act of obedience and practicing. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way also means a way of living in this world. That's why we have uh, a lot of commandments by Jesus about when you become part of the kingdom, this is how you should live. This is how your posture should be towards your spouse, towards people who have less power and privilege than you, people who are ostracized by society, people who are seen as second-class citizens by the world or by the culture. But yes, big picture, Buddha is essentially the solution to all of your problems lies within. If I can be very simplistic, it lies within. And Jesus is ultimately saying the solution to all your problems, you actually don't want to go in. That, that's the root of the problem. That's a lot of the root of the problem. That's where sin flourishes, the desires of your own heart. The solution to your problem lies, in a sense, above. You need a power outside of yourself to rescue you. Buddha says, no, not necessary. It's irrelevant to the conversation. You just need to come into a right understanding, and you can, in a sense, initiate your own rescue. It might be challenging and difficult, but you can do it. Buddha does not say, I did it. I'm the only one. I'm the only Buddha there ever was, ever will be. He says, no, I'm an enlightened one. Everybody has the potential to become an enlightened one too, but it's all on you. You can't look for deliverance from a God. You can't look for deliverance from any kind of a higher power, even other people. This is your journey to take. You're going to need a community who can help you learn the path, but they're not going to be able to assist you ultimately. This has to come from within. So that that is a huge distinction. Uh, Any other areas of divergence that jump out to you before I close with a few reflections? Oh, great question. What's the difference between rebirth and reincarnation? Reincarnation, okay, I'm going to say this as simply as I can, and forgive me if this comes across as uh, too simplistic. Reincarnation assumes that within samsara, within this um, uh, reality as we know it, these spheres of uh, uh, cyclical, uh, these realms that are cycling, there are things like permanent souls. There's, a, there's an essence of consciousness that is just strong that when I die, some of that essence will be reincarnated into another being. And that will, there will be continuity there. And so such that you can grow up and if you 
uh, attain certain levels of insight, you can say, well, I know in former lives I lived these things because there was some level of conscious continuity. That's reincarnation. Something solid from who we are gets recycled. Rebirth says, no, that's not true. Who you think you are is an illusion. The, the self, the Jeff Strongness that I think about myself is just a collection of what the Buddha called five ag- ag- aggregates. There's like sensation and, and physicality and intention. And he says, but at death, those all dissolve. The, those get recycled. My, my, my energy gets recycled into a new kind of life form as a rebirth, but there wouldn't be any continuation of a consciousness or a thread line where over um, hundreds of years you would say, oh, th- there's Jeff's soul occupying things along, um, things within samsara. Does that make sense? So rebirth is recycling of energy. Reincarnation is actually recycling energy, yes, but also a core soul that does continue and provides continuity across life at times. Okay, let me leave you with a few of these thoughts. Uh, Some of these have come up. Um, While there are some interesting places of convergence, uh, one of the big places of divergence, I think, lies in metaphysics. Is the nature of reality samsara? Has no beginning, has no end, really has no purpose is not going to progress or improve. It's just a cycle of death and rebirth. Is it purposeless or is the fundamental nature of reality a creation, which implies a creator of some kind, a beginning, some kind of intention and telos for the creation, likely some end goal or some at least direction in mind. That's really, really important. Is history linear and purposeful, or is it cyclical and purposeless? This is a place where Jesus and the Buddha would diverge pretty, pretty radically. Uh, Number two, is the fuel, is the, I don't want to use the word energy, or I don't want to use, it's not like the force, but is the, is the fundamental, I'll I'll use the term energy, but I don't necessarily mean it in in a, way that um, we'd think about it in terms of physics. Is the, fundam- is the foundational fuel of reality karma? Is that what is keeping this whole thing going? Or is the fundamental fuel of reality love and grace? Jesus' worldview says it's love and grace. It's by God's love and grace, this fatherly uh, creator presence that sustains the universe and progresses it forward. That while there are certainly karmic-like ideas in Scripture. You reap what you sow. God tells his people in Deuteronomy, you do these things, you'll be blessed. You do these things, and you're going to be cursed. There's kind of a direct karmic relation. What's underneath and around that for Jesus is the conviction that grace and love is actually at the foundation. That's the fuel in which we live and move and have our being. Is, is the nature of our hope for us as humans, is the nature of our hope for the relief and release from suffering, is the nature of it good news or good advice? The distinction is good news is something which has been done, which you can now take part of. Good advice is something that you need to do in order to achieve it. Jesus 
proclaims time and again in and through his ministry, I am declaring good news. A gospel, that's what the word gospel means, if you've ever heard that. It means good news. A good news proclamation that God in and through me is doing something that opens up for you a possibility that you could not achieve on your own. I'm not here to simply give you good advice. Buddha very honestly and very directly says, I have been enlightened and I have good advice, maybe the best advice, but it's still simply good advice and you have to walk in it, you have to perfect it, you have to master it, and then it will essentially um, pay dividends for you. So is the nature of our hope, putting our faith and trust and love in a power higher than us who can rescue us, or is it about doubling down, looking within and saying, no one else can help me, I'm responsible for my own rescue, for my own deliverance. Um, I think another important theme I'd want us to think through as we leave tonight is, is the, is the grand goal of all things escapism? Is the grand goal, and what does it really mean if the grand goal of all things is just simply to not be? Or, or even if it's the grand goal is to not suffer, as, as good and noble and as pleasing a goal as that might be, how does it change our understanding of what it means to be human if that is the grand goal? As opposed to, what if the grand goal, as Jesus' worldview and his teachings um, push us towards, the grand goal is actually redemption. Not escape from this world, but restoration for this world. That's a very, very big distinction between the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Jesus. And I think it's very, very important. Ethics might play out the same. You should show compassion. You should not take life. You should extend uh, mercy even to your enemies. But depending on whether you believe the ultimate goal is redemption or escapism, the reasons why you'll do those things are different. The sustaining power out of which you'll try and uh, access the grace to do those things will be different. Lastly, or sorry, a second lastly, um, the role of desire and attachment. This is a, a big point of divergence between uh, Jesus and Buddha. Buddha says the very nature of suffering comes from attachment. It comes from thirst. It comes from trying to cling on to things that you can't have. Buddha says attachment is the cause of suffering. Now, Jesus is going to modify that. I think his corrective would be, in some cases, yes, attachment to the wrong things is absolutely a cause of deep suffering. But the solution to suffering isn't detachment. It's reattachment to the right things. Jesus, when he teaches, he opens his longest extended teachings by saying things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are people who are desirous of attaining that. Blessed are those who mourn, who have become attached to things and then lost them. You will be comforted. Jesus doesn't say it's just an illusion, it's just passing by, it's, it's, it's impermanent. Your, your, your mourning comes from an illusory understanding of the world. Jesus says that's real and it's valid and there's a God who sees it, and there's a God who wants to come alongside you and walk that journey. Jesus even promotes fasting, not simply as a way to punish the body or discipline the body. Fasting in the Christian tradition is a process by which we go without in order to cultivate craving in our life for the right things. We fast in order to crave. A great book that came out a few years ago was, Lord, Teach Us to Crave, 
We need to learn to crave the right thing. So Buddha, attachment causes suffering. Jesus says attachment to the wrong things produces suffering. Uh, one writer on world religion says this. It says, on this crucial issue, the diagnosis of the human problem, Christianity and Buddhism seem about as far apart as possible. For where Buddha finds our desires too strong, Christ finds them too weak. Jesus wants us to desire and love more, not less. To love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And his critique of Buddha is, Buddha solves the problem of pain through a kind of spiritual euthanasia, curing the disease of egotism and self-centeredness by killing the entire idea of an ego or an I image, an image-bearingness of God and man. And lastly, I think a, a really important thing is, is each leader's self-understanding. Um, Buddha is very clear and honest. I'm a man. I'm not God. I'm not divine. I'm not, um, I'm not a demigod. Jesus consistently and clearly says, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. I'm divine. I have divine authority. I speak on behalf of God, not just speak as a, a representative I'm speaking the words with the same authority as God. Buddha says, don't look to me. Look to my dharma. Look to my teaching. Look to my way. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me because I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can access the creator except through me. Very bold thing for Jesus to say. No one can access the the creator of the universe except through him. So in conclusion... Uh, I would say that I think Jesus and Buddha represent two distinct paths of what we might call spirituality. I think each path begins with a kind of a different set of assumptions and a different, a different set, of, set of assumptions about the nature of things. And the, the telos, or the goal of history, and the very uh, meaning and nature of salvation. Uh, personally, uh, I find Buddhism unsatisfactory. That is not to say that Buddhism is without merit. Uh, there's lots of things that we didn't get to talk about that I would affirm, and I think we could beg, steal, and borrow from Buddhists. But the life of, and teachings of Jesus in their totality, I think, are without parallel. And I think they provide actually a better explanation and solution to the problem of suffering and provide a more coherent worldview that is grounded in themes that I think we don't want to believe are illusory. Themes of purpose, love, grace, Hope, redemption. One author has said, human beings are narrative creatures. We live in and through stories. Stories is how we make and understand our meaning. I would argue Buddhism and the worldview of Buddhism, samsara, cyclical nature, nonlinear, not progressive, not redemptive, cycles of death and rebirth, that actually can't explain where this narrative drive within us comes from. Why do we seek to understand our meaning and purpose through the lens of story again and again and again? And Christianity offers a powerful story. It's a story about a prince who forsakes riches, steps out of his palace to come and rescue his beloved. Christianity can and does invite us into a bigger story. And that's why for me, Jesus and what he represents is a more fruitful path to bliss and healing and hope and joy. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I'm going to stick around and 
dialogue and talk with people if you'd like, but I want to be respectful of time. We've gone pretty late tonight, so thank you very much for coming, and hope to see you again sometime. Bye-bye.